Podglomerate original. My name is Hugh Hefner. I'm 35 years of age and I'm editor-publisher of Playboy magazine. I started with a personal investment of $600. In eight years, I've built an empire worth $20 million. Andrew, I assume you're familiar with Playboy magazine. Yeah, I, I know of him. I've actually never held one in my hands in person. but what? I, I know. Internet. You're a whole different thing. Yeah. Would you know if I said Playboy Centerfold, would you know what that is? Yeah, it's the picture in the center. I mean, I saw them in like the magazine racks and stuff. I just never actually held But you've one seen them in movies and stuff like that. Yeah. Do you know that the centerfold like opens up? No. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, this Generational is. Generational thing. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Uh, this episode is about Playboy and its influence on stand up. How so? Remember, we talked about. Mort Saul. Yeah, I remember you told us in season one that he, he was like one of the first comedians. He didn't wear a tie, and, and he was conversational and, and political and, and sort of satirical. Absolutely, and he recorded that album, The Future Lies Ahead. Very influential in the history. In fact, there's a book called Mort Saul and the Birth of Modern Comedy. So his first performance at the Hungry Eye in San Francisco takes place December 22nd, 1953. Also in December 1953, the very first Playboy magazine is published. And you know who's on the cover, right? It's, uh, I think it's Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. Okay, but so why are we talking about Playboy magazine in the history of stand-up? It's not just because of that December 53 coincidence. It's because the founder, editor, and publisher of Playboy... Hugh Hefner. Yes, from Chicago, Illinois, decides in 1960, seven years after that first issue to open a club in Chicago called the Playboy Club and then opens a number of these clubs all around the country, creates this circuit where comedians get to work. This is before comedy clubs. That's what we're going to talk about. Welcome to the History of Stand-Up, the show where comedian and professor Wayne Fetterman teaches us all a little bit more about the history of stand-up. And I'm your fellow student, Andrew Stevens. Hello there. Glad you could join us this evening. I'm Hugh Hefner, editor publisher of Playboy magazine, and your host. And this is Playboy's Penthouse. Come on in and meet some of our guests. Well, here we have Eleanor Bradley and Miss Joyce Nazari, two of our most popular playmates, and Lenny Bruce, foremost exponent of uh, sick humor and... Oh! <laughs> Yeah. Oh boy, the champagne is really making my nose bubbly, Uncle <laughs> Especially, especially well known for his uh, extemporaneous and ad lib. That was ad lib. You like that? That was very ad lib. You're listening to a clip of Playboy's Penthouse, which was a show out of Chicago. Then that was the very first episode, October 24th, 1959, and of course Lenny Bruce is on it. And if you hear the jazz music in the background, I assume that's the Cy Coleman theme song. Besides Hugh Hefner's affection for voluptuous naked women, he was also an advocate for great writing, jazz music, and stand-up comedy. Now, in a way, 
Lenny Bruce's career parallels Hugh Hefner in that they are both fighting against the social etiquettes of the day. So he had a lot of trouble with this organization known as the Catholic Legion of Decency, just like comedian Lenny Bruce. Brilliant observation. This is Patty Farmer, who literally wrote the book on the Playboy Clubs. Just identical stories there. You know, the church, local law enforcement, federal law enforcement, they did everything they could to get both of them quieted. To a certain extent, I think they were successful with Lenny and uh, not with Hef. Exactly. Lenny Bruce was struggling in Los Angeles performing at strip clubs, and Hugh Hefner is making millions of dollars off this magazine, which is a runaway success, right in the middle of this conservative 1950s Eisenhower America. Michelle Silverstein, uh, a cartoonist, a very famous cartoonist, uh, This is Hugh Hefner talking on the documentary, Looking for Lenny. It was after midnight and uh, Shell came back and he had been at the Gate of Horn that night to see Lenny uh, perform and came back and said, they just arrested Lenny and uh, the cops came up and took him off the stage. So uh, we got a lawyer, my lawyer, and uh, dressed him up for his court appearance. He didn't own a tie, so he had to borrow one of my ties. Uh, and uh, we were there for him. And what happened, of course, to Lenny uh, was not simply isolated in Chicago. It happened in L.A., it happened in San Francisco, it happened in New York. Uh, and it, uh, there was obviously a concerted effort to close him down. Now, the reason I've gotten busted a lot this uh, last couple of years has been uh, because of religious point of view. That's what it's all been about. The reason I left England several hundred years ago, uh, there's a bunch of us that did leave. And let's go to America, a country where we can be disgusting and do disgusting shows, and no one can stop us. We'll enjoy that right. We can be this disgusting. We can go in front of a synagogue and sing about pork. (laughs) And no Jew or Muslim or vegetarian can stop us. So providing legal aid was just another example of how Hefner supported Lenny Bruce, and later Playboy would publish Lenny's autobiography, How to Talk Dirty and Influence People, which was a takeoff of How how to Win Friends and Influence People. Yes, Dale Carnegie. And he also serialized that book in the magazine. During this time, in no short order, flush with money, Hefner creates the first Playboy Jazz Festival in Chicago, starts his television show, Playboy Penthouse, buys a mansion, and opens the first Playboy nightclub, but just called the Playboy Club. Again, all of this in Chicago. Backstage, there are about 5,000 kids from FM stations all over the country, the college stations. That's Mort Saul, who Hugh Hefner brought in to host the first ever Playboy Jazz Festival on Friday, August 7th, 1959. And they'll ask all those questions like, uh, where is jazz going? And then he'll say, well, we're going to Cleveland on Tuesday. <laughs> I thought this, you know, this is, this is largely the, the greatest undertaking in jazz. And it was a great prognosis of doom 
for the staff of Playboy, when this thing started, everybody said, you're going to fall on your head, you can get awful lonely in here, and the musicians are going to outnumber the audience. And as you can see, there seems to be a reasonable market in Chicago for this kind of thing. There's been devotion for a long time, and I know the guy when he sat down and told me he had this idea, and I too said, you're out of your mind. But obviously, he knew what he was doing. That's the editor and publisher of Playboy magazine, Hugh Hefner, who might be back there. This is certainly the greatest and wildest moment in my young life. Well, I, I, looking at this house, Hugh, I, you know, all I can say to you, know, do you have any questions? Yeah, I've just got one for the audience itself. You want us to do it again next year? So the festival's this huge success, 70,000 people attend. And at the same time, Hefner is thinking of opening a nightclub because there's a local club in Chicago called the Gaslight Club. It's very popular and exclusive. You actually had to be a member to get in. And at first, Hefner was like, oh, maybe I should be part of this, and then realized, well, let me open my own club. So he had the idea of creating Playboy Bunnies. Not Playboy Playmates. These were bunnies that would be the waitresses at this club. I'm reading from the ad right here. Playboy is opening a new key club catering to Chicago's most prominent executives and sportsmen. To serve our exclusive clientele and decorate the club, we are looking for 30 single girls between the ages of 18 and 23. Experience is not necessary. Just be beautiful, charming, and refined. So I'm confused. Was the Playboy Club, was it like a, a strip club? Yeah, I understand why you would think that because of the naked women in the magazine, but just the opposite. Playboy, in a stroke of branding genius by Hugh Hefner, was aiming at a very sophisticated readership with the writing and the artwork. Kind of like the New Yorker might be perceived today. Not quite on that level, but yes, he was definitely aiming high, and that was his move to make nudity no longer associated with being indecent or immoral or smutty. So the Playboy Club reflected that aesthetic. This was like a very refined supper club. Only men could be members. You had to wear a jacket and tie for entrance into the club, and you were not allowed to touch or date any of the bunnies. The whole thing was a sophisticated experience and he wanted everybody to want to belong. So he made it a membership only club, which was just psychological gimmick because anyone who could fill out their name and address on a form, they got a membership. Your membership is approved. This is the point in Hugh Hefner's career where everything he is touching is turning to gold. And People looked for any excuse to open their wallets to show that Playboy Club card. The membership fee was only $25, and in the first year, more than 50,000 keys were sold. So the first Playboy Club opened in Chicago on Monday, February 29th, 1960. One of the most popular comedians who's working the Playboy Club in Chicago is this guy named Irwin Corey. He's known as the foremost authority, Professor Irwin Corey. Is, is he an actual professor? I don't think so. My topic for this evening will be music and the housing problem. 
people think that jazz began with Benjamin Goodman. <laughs> no, jazz really began. Oh, it began before that. <laughs> jazz really began, went to Hollywood one day, as it must to all men. <laughs> A child was born. And they called it the Andrew Sisters. You can hear in that clip that Erwin Corey had this unique character-based absurdist style that, that very much pre-echoes the alternative scene that came years later. But here's where it gets interesting. Erwin Corey, working the Playboy Club, doesn't work on a Sunday. Like, six nights is enough for him. So, to fill in for Erwin Corey on that cold January Sunday night in 1961, they hire this local Chicago comic for $50. When I worked there, it wasn't but one Playboy club in the whole world. That's Dick Gregory talking with PBS. But people came in from all over the world because it was a status symbol. To have a key to the Playboy club is like having a Mercedes now. And people came in from all over. I mean, it become a tourist attraction for Chicago. And so uh, when I get called down there, they say $50 for that one night. So I'm thinking $50 a night times seven. I say it's 50. I didn't know it was that much money in the world. So I didn't know at the time that a Negro is not permitted to work a white nightclub. That's in all of America. I had no money. And I don't know that white folks don't pay you that night. You know, you get paid through your agent. So I, I get on the bus, and I get off at the wrong stop. It's a blizzard. And I look at my watch, and it's quarter to eight. And uh, I, I meant to be at his place at 7.30, but because of the blizzard, everything was. And I got my suit and my, my little bag over my arm and my shoes, and I'm running. And I'm asking everybody, do you know where the Playboy Club is? And they say, you go down there. And about eight blocks away in the blizzard, I see this huge sign that says Playboy. I'm praying, thank God. And I'm running, and I'm slipping, and I'm sliding. And I run up on stage. The first time I didn't get to put my outfit on. And I started talking. And uh, I had a thing where I asked people where they're from. Alabama! And I said, I spent 20 years down there one day, and they just go crazy. You can just hear the laugh, the, the giggling. When you can go past laughing and get the giggling, man, that's when you're cooking. I, I was cooking so good that night, I wish I was sitting out there listening to me. I was honest. I wasn't disrespectful. I wasn't mean. I wasn't bitter. And from that, Hefner brought me back for two weeks. That was the first time in the history that a Negro comedian have been booked in a white nightclub. It was a general policy of most white club owners not to book black comedians for a white audience. Here's comedy historian Cliff Nesteroff. 
It's not quite true that no black comedians played white clubs. There was another black comedian named Timmy Rogers. He played a place called the Beverly Hills Country Club, which was not in Beverly Hills. It was in Covington, Kentucky. And Timmy Rogers headlined that club as early as 1949. But they had this sort of inherent belief that a black man giving his opinion to a white audience was taboo. The Playboy Clubs and Hugh Hefner are responsible for blowing the doors wide open. A very pleasant good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And here in the famous Chicago Playboy Club, we present a man, a young man, a humorist, who faces the realities of our time with a smile on his mobile face. Ladies and gentlemen, Dick Gregory. I wish you'd read all the papers. You know, you've been reading these local papers, you know, they're calling me the Negro Mark Saul. You have to read in Congo papers and see what they call him Mark Saul, the white Dick Gregory. Don't <laughs> <laughs> Since I've been on the Jack Parr show, everybody's been asking me what is Jack Parr really like. You know, I'm trying to find out who I am. <laughs> They can call me Bob Newhart, Shelley Berman, Mark Saul, and a couple of... I'm so confused being three white boys and myself, I don't know what to do. <laughs> well, the way things go in 10 years from now, you have to be my color to get a job. <laughs> and so after Dick Gregory, comedians that were much older than Dick Gregory and had been along much longer, for the first time ever, are playing white venues. Slappy White, who's a black comic, signed a contract with the Playboy Clubs after that. No, I just smoke the time I act. See, when I smoke a regular, I know I've been on, say, 18 minutes. Or if I smoke a king size, I know I've been on for 36 minutes. Got a hold of one in Mexico one time, I was on for two days. <laughs> the Playboy Club in Chicago is another huge success for Hugh Hefner. There's over 17,000 people attend that club just in its first year. So he decides to open Playboy Club franchises all across the United States and even overseas. Here's just a few of them. Miami, New Orleans, St. Louis, New York City, Phoenix, Detroit, Kansas City, Cincinnati, Los Angeles, Boston, Atlanta, San Francisco, and then in 1966, London. By the middle of, of the 1960s, we had about uh, 20 clubs across the country, and it became a, a form of the last stages of vaudeville. That's Hugh Hefner. In other words, what we had was the Playboy Club circuit, so you could work for the for the club all year long. The Playboy circuit became the new vaudeville. And that's comedian Tom Dreesen. You know, he had so many clubs around the country that the comedians could go from one to another. And Jerry Van Dyke told me he could work a solid year just working for Playboy. Are you familiar with Jerry Van Dyke? Any relation to Dick? Yeah, it's Dick Van Dyke's younger brother who was also in show business. And he had an act called Comedy and Pantomime with a banjo. Hello, dude. When a fellow walks into a psychiatrist's office and he's all orange and blue and purple and green all over and he's got a pelican on his head and the pelican has a fish in his mouth. And they walk up to the psychiatrist and the pelican says, Say, can you tell me how I can get this guy out from under my feet? <laughs> Another Playboy circuit regular was a very creative comedian named Charlie Callis. 
Good evening, welcome. My name is Charlie Callis. That's my real name, and I was named after the famous opera singer, Maria Charlie. Let <laughs> me tell you a story that I love to tell because I have fun doing it. Good heavens. This story concerns two, two men who are both friends. What comes after the area code? Hello, is this, uh, is this, uh, is this, uh, Ralph? Hey! Uh, uh. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Guess who this is? <laughs> Listen there, Ralph, today's my, uh, Thanking for my birthday, uh, my <laughs> friends. They all chipped in, and you know what they bought me? That's right, they bought me a prize. They bought me a prize. They bought me a you know it's a Winchester. I think you put a bullet and right. They bought me a shotgun. So listen, I'll tell you what you do. Do. Why don't you jump in your car and drive over to my house? Whoa, country on those shooting. So his friend at the other end says, <laughs> What you say? Pat Morita, who most people know from The Karate Kid or Happy Days, got his start as a stand-up comedian on the Playboy Club circuit. Pat Morita called himself the hip nip which, yes, that's offensive, but interesting to note, this is probably the last generation of stand-ups, Pat Morita's generation, that would bill themselves, that would actually have a name for their act. Oh, look, uh, don't misunderstand me. Uh, uh, I'm of Japanese extraction, but I was born and raised around San Francisco, and uh, that just goes to prove that we weren't all made in Japan. <laughs> oh, look, I, I know a lot about Japan. Uh, I've never been there before, just happened to look like the rest of them. But uh, most people think that French is the sexiest language in the world. I disagree. I think it's Japanese. Japanese is the only language I ever heard of where before they even say anything, they go, oh. So again, you had a minority voice that was being presented at these Playboy clubs. And Pat Morita's manager was Sally Marr, who is Lenny Bruce's mom. Sally Marr managed to book a lot of comedians that were not that well known. Pat Morita was one of them. Sally Marr handled uh, Jackie Gale. Jackie Gale's credited with being the Playboy Club comic opening all the clubs. And today everything is credit cards. American Express, Diners, Card Blanche. You know how rough that is for stick up men? Today they put a pen in your back and say sign. <laughs> And there's no trust in this world. A sicker man put a gun in this fella's back. He said, give me your money. He said, I don't have any money. Take a check. He's okay, but let me see your driver's license. <laughs> and you notice policemen are different wherever you go. You go to Chicago, you'll see police cars that look like good human trucks. Blue and white with blue lights. They'll pull you over to give you a ticket. You want to go to pistachio on a Sunday. <laughs> How about Southern California? The policemen are all six foot four. Bootstraps and white helmets. They look like they'll walk over the car and say, here is a ticket. Follow me to court. <laughs> I started out in show business, there were no comedy clubs. Right. Every nightclub in America had a comic, singer, 
singer, comic. Here's Tom Dreesen again. You know, you did four and five shows a night in the Playboy Club. They had two showrooms, the penthouse and the playroom. They'd, they'd, you'd, they'd fill the room, there'd be lines waiting, and they'd fill the penthouse upstairs. Then when that got filled, they'd start filling the playroom downstairs, okay? When, when they were ready to start the show, let's just say you start in the playroom, you'd go on, the girl singer would go on and do three or four songs, and then she would finish and leave, and we'd come on. And, and we'd be doing like 45 minutes, and she did maybe like 15 minutes, so it was like an hour show in those days. Now, she'd wait till we had about 10 minutes to go, and then she'd go upstairs and start singing upstairs, okay? Now, when we finished that show, we shot upstairs, and she finished her song, and we went on there, and she'd wait till we had about 10 minutes to go, and she'd go down to the... By that time, that room was filled, and that's what you did. You went up the stairs, then down the stairs. Because there were so many rooms and stages, it was a great opportunity for young comedians to develop, whether it was in New Orleans or St. Louis or New York. Yeah, it was the New York Playboy Club. This is Lily Tomlin. But I lived in Yonkers at the time, and so we and I had to beat it to the station to get on a train. And I would I'd wear my clothes under my costume, and I'd rip them off, and I'd run off the front of the stage down the aisle and... and and take a cab to the station, and, and I'd just make the train. Because if I didn't make it, I would have had to spend the night in town. By 1966, money is pouring into the company. It's grossed $24.9 million just that year. This must have been amazing news for the comedians. It was a great way for them to make a living. Well, they got a lot of work. Yeah, no, they gave you nothing. They gave you nothing. That's the voice of comedian Dick Capri. No, they, they did not pay transportation, and they did not pay for the hotel room. You, you could eat there where the employees ate. And the top money uh, at that time was $1,000 a week, and uh, I did not get that. Jackie Gale, uh, he was the top comedian on the, on the Playboy Clubs in those days, you know. So uh, I, I got $500 a week. And I did all the Playboy clubs. It was just great. And the toughest one to do was uh, New Orleans. We had to do like four shows a day, and then on the weekend, maybe even they would throw another show in there. There was different rooms that kept going up and down to, you know, and, and knocking this stuff off. And they say life begins at 40. Sure, if you're getting out of prison. <laughs> And then the shape I used to be a little fragile now. If I stub my toe, I get chest pains. <laughs> and they always compare us with 20-year-old guys. The only difference between a 20-year-old and a 40-year-old guy is not the way we look, the way we dress. The difference in these two ages, you will find in the medicine cabinet. See, a 20-year-old guy's medicine cabinet, he's got Noxium and Clearasil. And a 40-year-old guy's medicine cabinet, he's got Polygrip and Preparation H. <laughs> and they work. <laughs> but don't mix them up. So because Hugh Hefner is this champion of stand-ups and these clubs are very successful, several comedians record albums at Playboy clubs, amongst them Moms Mabley and Slappy White and the comedy team of Curtis and Tracy and Don Sherman, who, by the way, is the father of Amy Sherman Palladino, the creator of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. But there was one Playboy Club comedy album that is extremely curious. The uh, Playboy Key Club takes great pleasure in presenting a bright new comedy team. 
The editors of Playboy magazine regard this act as one of the year's most promising discoveries. Ladies and gentlemen, here they are, Burns and Carla. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my name is Jack Burns. This is my partner, Mr. George Carlin. If there are two things in life that we as individuals, George and myself, dislike intensely, uh, one of them is the jelly you'll find on the other side of the soap if you leave it in the dish overnight. The other, women's clubs. Uh, my feelings were engendered by the fact that my mother, a wonderful woman, was president of a women's club while I was growing up. As I say, she was wonderful, but a slightly misguided. She was fighting for recognition of Red China. This was in 38. <laughs> Yeah, I never realized that George Carlin was part of a comedy team. That's not the curious part. That album, which it claims is from the Playboy Club, was recorded here in Los Angeles at a place called Cosmo Alley. How were they able to do that? Hefner was such a big supporter of Carlin. He's like, yeah, you can put my club's name on your album to raise its profile. The Playboy Club's are killing it. Newsweek magazine calls these clubs Disneyland for adults. So this is where Hugh Hefner makes his first big mistake and decides to open a number of resorts under the Playboy name, amongst them in Jamaica, Lake Geneva, Miami, the Bahamas, Montreal, and Great Gorge, which was in New Jersey. Well, Hefner tried to make the resorts family-friendly. He wanted them to be a place where you would take your families and spend the weekend. So to attract these kind of people, he got, I'd like to say, heavy hitters. You know, the Milton Burles, and he would have Joan Rivers at the height of her career. Because um, I don't know how many of you here are in show business, but um, it's very hard, really, to meet anybody in the business because everybody you meet is either married already or a dancer. And, um... <laughs> until I married my husband was my hairdresser, Mr. Phyllis. <laughs> but I, I, mean, I, mean, I knew my husband for years, which is interesting because he never paid any attention to me. We went to the same school. We went to a progressive school, the Fanny Hill and Dale Country Day. And, uh, he never noticed me because I was a very, ug I was a fat child. Not ugly so much, but like fat, you know? Like, like fat. <laughs> like, like I was my own buddy at camp. You know, that's <laughs> they go, buddies, my hands would go up. And because I was so fat, I didn't have any friends because nobody could get close enough to me to find out I was fun. So I began to retreat very much into myself. And my parents, my parents spotted this. My parents are very intelligent, sensitive parents. And my father said, the lump is turning strange. So... <laughs> You know, Shecky. Shecky Green. I think that's the most important thing in our business, a nice introduction. Because I had an introduction one time on a television show about eight years ago, almost destroyed my career the way I was brought out. There's a guy on Sunday nights, I forget his name right now, but... He's uh... <laughs> tonight on our show. Well, I'd like very much, ladies and gentlemen, to introduce a young, fat, fat, young, young, fat, fat, young, young, fat, a young, fat. And here he is right now, ladies and gentlemen, Chicky. Chikey, Chucky, whatever the heck his name is. And I ran out and said, thank you, Edie, Idie, Udie. Whatever your name is. Actually, I've never worked a show after that, and that's one of the reasons why I'm glad I got the opportunity to tell you about it now. I never got enamored with anything with those 
Playboy. Then I worked at St. George, and uh, I opened that for him. That's Shecky Green, and if it's difficult to hear, he's talking about opening the Great Gorge Playboy Resort in Vernon, New Jersey. And later he would tell Patty Farmer in her book Playboy Laughs that, quote, people who wanted to go to a Playboy club went to a Playboy club. They didn't want to drive hours out of the city to go to a resort. I think that was a shock to Hef. Unquote. We had 22 girls and 12 customers. So I sat the girls down and got the customers to wait on the people. And uh, they paid them a lot more money, which I think was really the downfall. He spent too much money, both building the resorts and then paying the talent to go there. But there was also other trouble brewing for the Playboy clubs because their audiences tended to be businessmen who had families, not exactly comedy fans. So as the next generation of comedians comes along, there becomes a wider dissonance between the type of act and the type of audience expectations created by these rooms. My partner and I played mostly um, folk rooms in colleges. That's Fred Willard. Uh, the trouble is that it, it wasn't really our audience. The eating during the show and bunnies were serving um, dinner and uh, we, we did pretty well at, at uh, a couple of them. You know, it was kind of hit and miss. Well, miss would be a very polite way to describe what happened to George Carlin on the late show at the Lake Geneva Playboy Resort in Wisconsin on Saturday night, November 28th, 1970. I had an incident at the Playboy Club in Wisconsin. Now, at this time, George Carlin is becoming more and more disillusioned over the fact he has to perform in front of nightclub audiences that he has a growing contempt for. He hates these businessmen and golfers and country club types. And he really is thinking, I'd rather perform for their kids. I'm only 30 years old, but I connect more with their point of view than their parents. At this time, Carlin started ranting about the war and other things that disgusted him about America. Some people in the crowd got upset with him and that made him more upset, but he needed the money, so he decided to keep performing even though the crowd had turned against him. And when he had done his time, instead of leaving stage left, in a show of defiance, he walks directly through the crowd and they're booing him, and there's just one table applauding. And then when he gets back to his room, he gets a telegram saying, not only is he fired from this gig, but he has to vacate the premises because they cannot guarantee his safety. And worse, they're not gonna pay him his money. So he's like, what? I did my time. He's like, what do I do? I need this money. So he goes, oh, I know, I'll just go to Chicago. This is the one person who certainly supports free speech, Hugh Hefner. So that Saturday night, George Carlin drives from Lake Geneva, through Kenosha, through Waukegan, gets to Chicago, Illinois, goes to the Playboy Mansion, and half is there playing pinball with Bill Cosby. So Carlin explains the situation. Half turns to him and says, I would have loved to have seen that show, but uh, you're not getting paid. And after a similar incident in Las Vegas, George Carlin gave up nightclubs for good. I said to them, I said, I belong in the colleges. That's where I'm going. And this is where uh, this will be history for me. And I told my wife, I said, if all I ever do the rest of my life is fill coffee houses every weekend, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I'll be happy. That's all I want to do. I'll do that. 
Steve Martin had a much less dramatic but similar experience when he would play the clubs and the crowds wouldn't quite get his anti-comedy comedy he was developing. And, and he says in his book, Born Standing Up, the Playboy clubs were well-paying but soul-killing. By the 80s, this whole circuit is imploding. In 1986, New York closes, L.A. closes, and the very first Playboy Club in Chicago, Illinois, closes its doors. Then two years later, the last remaining Playboy Club in Lansing, Michigan, ceases operation. I think it was Steve Allen did a survey, maybe eight or 10% of Americans had ever seen a comedian live, you know, on stage. They just, that was a, an anomaly, you know. The Playboy circuit provided many people an opportunity to see live comedy, and more important, gave so many comedians a great chance to develop on stage, make some money, and for older comedians, a last chance to hold on and seem relevant. It existed in this unique time period in the history of stand-up where you had comedians from the Borscht Belt or nightclubs like George Kirby or Corbett Monica, Norm Crosby, Lou Alexander, Dick Lord, Jackie Mason playing the same room as young comedians from the comedy clubs like David Brenner or Jimmy Walker, Gabe Kaplan, Kelly Monteith, Freddie Prinze or Billy Crystal. So it was a real bridge between the nightclub era and the comedy boom. The basic concept for it, the things that Playboy represents, are the dreams that I myself had as a youngster as I was growing up. The uh, big, wild, wonderful world of sophistication, urbanity, sports cars, food and drink, beautiful women, hi-fi, jazz, Andrew, may I leave you with one more thing? Yeah. In 2001, Comedy Central broadcast a roast of Hugh Hefner. And on the panel that night, 65-year-old Dick Gregory remembers what Hef did for him and others. When I met you, you had a courage when no one was bringing in blacks and minorities and let you stand flat-footed in America and just talk. You brought me in. You didn't give me no lecture. You came to a black nightclub in Chicago and saw me. And the next thing someone said, Hef, I want you to work the Playboy Club. You gave me no instructions. I was there. And I come here tonight not to roast you because had you not had the guts you had back then, we black comics that the world have been able to look at and understand our genius, we would be in some pot now roasting in debt and wondering when we're going to make it. So I say I love you. We thank you. God bless you, my brother. In America.
The History of Stand-Up is written and produced by Wayne Fetterman and me, Andrew Stephen. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and The Podglomerate. You can find more of their podcasts at thepodglomerate.com. Special thanks to Dick Capri, Jackie Curtis, Tom Dreesen, Patty Farmer, whose book all about the Playboy Clubs, Playboy Laughs, is available everywhere books are sold. Shecky Green, Cliff Nesteroff, who also has a book, The Comedians, available everywhere, Lily Tomlin, Fred Willard, and the Abraham Comedy Archives. Some of the music in this episode is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Please follow us on Twitter at Hist of Standup. That's H-I-S-T-O-F-S-T-A-N-D-U-P. And online at thehistoryofstandup.com. If you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.